It's time to take care of business. I'm Rob Rose. And I'm Julieta Televi. Today, as investors make do with a scanty 11-page summary of PwC's 14-month investigation into Steinoff's accounting irregularities, which is a quaint euphemism if ever there was one, we thought we'd speak to the two analysts who refused to buy Marcus Eustace's fables right from the beginning, Craig Butters and Andrew Cuff. Craig Butters is now with Prudential, uh, but formerly ran a hedge fund for Breit, where he met former Steinoff chair Christo Visser in 2009 to warn him away from what he thought could be a Ponzi scheme. Andrew Cuff, meanwhile, was the head of research at JP Morgan, where in 2007, a young analyst called Sean Holmes compiled his own report that, as Rob has written in his book Steinheis, methodically deconstructed Steinhoff's flaky business model. Andrew, thanks very much for coming into our studios today. Pleasure. Andrew, you were head of research at JP Morgan, like we said, when Sean Holmes published his report, which said, I think it was 2007, which said, we are concerned about the quality of Steinoff's earnings, especially given its poor financial disclosure and lack of transparency. It talked of a pattern of aggressive accounting. And now, in the very last couple of days, we've had this PwC summary, uh, scant 11 pages though it is, <laughs> which, which talked about the aggressive accounting to the tune of 106 billion rand or 6.4 billion euros. Um, it's nice to be right about this, isn't it? Um, yes, but about 10 years too early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose Time, it's Timing in life is everything, right? Exactly. <laughs> but, but in this case, I mean, you've read PwC's um, summary over the last weekend. Sure. What were your thoughts about, about it and, and what it essentially didn't contain and did contain? Um, firstly, I think it, it does indicate the scope or, or the size of the, the fraud. It's huge. I mean, it's massive. Um, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's very scant on details, and I think in some ways quite defensive. It's um, I think it's it's it doesn't give much away, and I think obviously the company, the, the directors are protecting themselves, and they're trying to protect the company, and and therefore I think they've they've left out a lot of details that could implicate others. For example, I think the fact that they keep emphasising a small number of individuals involved. Uh, I just don't see how it's possible that it can be a small number of in individuals involved. I think at a lower level, there were accountants who knew numbers. There were people who had to put through entries. It's not a small number. 6.4 billion euro fraud. You'd imagine that quite a few people might have known. Sure. And, and entries have to be put through. I mean, ultimately, I mean, you can argue that they'd be done at a, at a consolidated level, at a holding company level, people would put through entries. But these are entries that, by the account of this report, pertain to debtors being, you know, Money being being or money's own being passed from one debtor to another debtor, um, and then and then an entry, an entry later on fur further on to to inflate assets to get rid of the debtor and inflate an asset to to obviously create the debit in the balance sheet. I mean, you know, one talks about these complex financial transactions. Are, are they really complex? Or if you had a, a really good grounding in accounting, I mean, should these have been obvious from the get go? Were they obvious to Sean when he published his report? No, because you, you, they, they are, they're obvious in, in the sense that the numbers are, are there and um, but the explanations behind the numbers, um, you can believe or, or not believe management. You know, a lot of the numbers that Sean questioned at the time related to trademarks, things that, things that have come to light later on, um, transfer pricing was a, was, was a big issue. And a lot of this is achieved through pr transfer pricing and things like that. Um, so in a sense, you, you, you know, the numbers allow you to question things. Um, it's very difficult without insider knowledge to conclude. Yeah. It, uh, you, I mean, Steinhoff in its report talked about the words accounting irregularities a lot. It seemed to 
perhaps because the lawyers insisted steer away from the word fraud quite deliberately. And we spoke to Craig Butters about this a bit earlier. Um, it'd be if we could just play back what he said to us. I did find one interesting little bit of information, and I think it's quite significant. And the one thing that I kept asking myself was, were these just accounting irregularities? Or was there misappropriation of cash and assets as well? And there is reference uh, to that under the remedial measures uh, paragraphs. And I think that's quite significant to me. Um, But kept on going on about the accounting irregularities and non-compliance with laws and regulations. And clearly that is important. And in my own opinion, accounting irregularities is fraud. But uh, immediately after that, they use the word misappropriation. And I think that's that's quite significant to me, as I've mentioned. Is, is misappropriation not just a lawyer's word for theft? Uh, that's how I would interpret it, yes. And I, it, it's a wide term, but uh, I, I think we can assume from that, and, and this is my assumption, is that assets or money has disappeared. And a lot of it is with these, uh, these third party accounts receivables, which eventually ended up um, disappearing through other set-offs and other transactions. Something that I did allude to in 2009 as well. So Andrew, I mean, your thoughts on that? I mean, is, is accounting irregularities, it, it does seem to me that it would be fraud. Is it the same? Yeah, I think it's a euphemism for it. I mean, and, and ultimately, I think it's, it, the end result is the same, is, is that shareholders get cheated. You know, you know. I mean, often in these in these in these larger and, and listed entities, mani- management is rewarded on the basis of a, of a combination of um, earnings, share price. All those things are supported by accounts that are manipulated. They get rewarded. Shareholders get punished. I, I mean, it's it's a taking from some to give. It's to a others. non-virtuous circle. <laughs> exactly. An interesting question for me is is um, is what's left in in the stand of share price for shareholders. Is there anything there? I mean, this is... Do you um, think there is? Well, I think on the positive side, and this may have been why the share price went up, is, is they state very clearly in this note that um, if they had need to write down the asset values or the balance sheet that they disclosed for the, the 31st of March 2017, that they would tell shareholders. Um, it indicates to me a level of confidence in their part that they won't have further write downs. So that's a positive. And the negative is that it's a very, very ugly balance sheet. <laughs> you know, this, this has got to be the worst-looking balance sheet. Since Petro SA. Since Petro SA. It's not a pretty sight. I mean, it's, you, know, you, 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 you ought to know something I don't to bet on this company. Uh, I, in, my, in, my view, in, in my view, I think, I think this has been kept alive by creditors, by, by debt holders who, who kind of trying to maximise their position. Which seems reasonable enough, I suppose, in the current circumstance. I was going to ask, Andrew, about that report, the Sean Holmes report, yeah. after that came out. There was a lot of, a lot of flack, um, you and I have spoken about it, that, that J.P. Morgan got um, from Steinhoff and from Marcus Eustace. Could you, could you perhaps just elaborate on this and tell, tell us what happened? Yes. Okay, so, so Sean, Sean had written a report and he had done a lot of, a, a lot of work and, and um, gone to a lot of trouble, and I mean, perhaps more trouble than usual because we knew... We had a thesis actually going into it, and as he went along, it, it seemed that that thesis was proving correct. And you know, he had gone so far as to to try get hold of financial statements of its foreign entities, find out who the auditors were, um, and he had picked up a whole lot of anomalies. Um, we published the report, 
and it, it was obviously negative. And Marcus then got hold of J.P. Morgan and, and wanted, you know, wanted us to to change the report, I guess. And, and he, he believed we didn't understand the companies. And I had a series of meetings with with him, and then later on one with Len Kona. Um And the, you know, the, the theme was the same. You know, M- Marcus would rattle on about the company, its history, and, and give a you know, try, a try sales, sales talk. It was essentially a sales talk, yeah. Um, and and I don't remember much of it actually, because <laughs> it was just a, a sales pitch, I think. Yeah. Um, and and we kept reiterating, we kept reiterating. If, if there's any factual error, point it out. We'll we'll happily change it. We'll if if we factually incorrect. And nothing was ever pointed out. I think, but through the whole process, there were certain things that really confirmed our concerns. I mean, I remember at one point. Um, Sean ask, asking the, the FD at the time about certain um, how, how the margins got to be what they were in foreign entities versus local entities, what um, transfer pricing had made that possible. And, and at the time he replied, no, only Marcus deals with that, which is, is absurd. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, it's absolutely absurd for, for a large listed entity. Um, Andrew, did, did I mean Sean is quite lucky to have you back him because I'm not sure if a lot of analysts would have had uh, the head of research say we're completely behind you, um, yeah. especially if you're being bullied by an executive um, like Marcus Yester. Was there a backlash from from JP Morgan itself because it also meant it seemed, as I understand it from reading Rob's book, that JP Morgan lost out a bit in terms of advisory work that then you know. Uh, rolled on uh, post 2007 in terms of all the business that and the deals that Steinhoff did. Yeah, so um, you have two thoughts on that. I mean, thank you. But one is that, you know, if you're a football manager and you don't support your players, you know, you're going to not have a team pretty soon. You know, ask Jose Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you, you back your players and Sean was right. And I, I shared his thesis, so it wasn't hard. Yeah. You know, I absolutely believed in... in in the thesis and nothing and, and all the evidence supported it and, and you've got to go with the evidence um, before you and, and, that, and that's what we did. The second issue on JP Morgan is um, there, were, there was absolutely no um, hint that, they, that, that, they were, that them being against it or resisting it. So you felt that you had the independence to go sure. out and, 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 and say a, what you wanted. And at one of the meetings I had the country head at the time, John Zayna, go, go with me to see you. Um, Marcus and Pete Ferreira, and there was, there was. I mean, John John was absolutely supportive. So, so there were, there were, I never felt any any issues. Is that? I mean, now you have issues where I think it's a lot harder in the broking business, and research analysts have a much tougher time. We've seen a few examples like Tongat, where the analysts have come under certain pressure. Um, do, do you feel that the industry is the research analyst industry is a lot more under siege now, and that you find that that dividing line between Independent research not being quite as firm as it once was, and and potentially compromising the quality of the of the research. Again, I don't know, Robert. I, <laughs> I think there's I think there's a broader problem. I, I think I think th- there's a systemic problem, where I don't think um, I, I don't think I, I think whistleblowers on sport. I mean, take Steinhoff. Let's go back to Steinhoff. Yeah. <clears throat> Here, here's a case where, where there's got to be a lot of people who knew that that something was wrong. Um, I don't necessarily think people were told not to say something, but I think just like in, in, in broken, there's a lot. There's a lot that's implicit. Okay. You, you know, if you know, if you if you if if an analyst is aware that their that their 
bank um, is doing a lot of business with an entity, they, they would know that. You know, th- perhaps, perhaps uh, you know, th- nothing has to be said. So a you know, form and, sort and, of self-censorship uh, from the get-go. Co- correct, but, yeah. I, I think there is. I mean, and, and I think in these entities, you, you know, Marcus was an absolutely dominant CEO. Uh, you know, he... I mean, Rob has talked about the cult of Marcus in his Correct, book. Correct, yeah. He, he willed his authority. People, people feared him. Um, but also, I think it suited people because people largely, as I understand it, were doing very well out of it. You know, so, so people were it paid to be compliant, yeah. you know, up until it didn't. <laughs> but I do wonder why it is that so many analysts didn't, very few people saw this as, as something that was um, questionable. There was, a, there was a strong sense that, that Steinhoff was on the up and up and you should, you should see it as a buy. Yeah. Why did so few people see through it? I think a lot of people did see through it. Um, I think there were a lot of asset managers who either were underweight, even at the time. I think there were a fair number of asset managers who, who were underweighted. I think there were people, certainly at the time, Sean did his report. The market was quite divided. There were people who loved the stock and people who hated the stock. Mm. Um, and, and so there were, there were people, who, I, I mean, we met investors who, who wouldn't go near it, even at that, at, at that time. So, so I think it's... Um, what was it, the whole thing that Dick Cheney sort of, it was a known unknown, <laughs> you know, rather. But I must say, I found, I, I, I remember those days where it was yeah. a lot more divided yeah. and it was especially before they did the Conferama deal. And But it was after that deal that I think a lot of people changed their minds on Steinhoff and thought, wow, this is a legitimate business. You know, the, it's the, the challenger to IKEA, uh, you know, giant French-German company and they've bought it at the right time after the financial crisis, they've got a good deal. And it seemed to me, uh, you know, um, having markets discussions every night that there was a definite shift um, uh, for people who thought, okay, maybe Steinhoff is actually, it's a real it's, business. It's, it's, it's real, it's genuine, it's not bogus. Um, <laughs> do, I mean, do you think, because because how else would Steinhoff have sucked in so much investor capital and become such a, um, a stalwart of the top 40 um, if not for... A, 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 a you know a, a wider decision to to back this kind of horse. Yeah, I mean, Rob and I have spoken to, about this before, and I you know I I, I wasn't so much Conferama for me. It was it was uh, Christo Visa. Um, the big deal. Yeah, and and I, I at that time I thought two things. I mean, one is that one of one of my big issues with Steinhoff is that they just absorbed so much cash over so many years, consecutive years. You know, this was this was like. A cash absorption machine, <laughs> not a cash generation. It's sort of you know. like a mini Eskom. Yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable how much cash that, and and suddenly they had a, a business that was clearly cash generative, that it was now part of the stable. So so that we thought, well, actually, maybe 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 this 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 could look interesting. Then Chris had, had supposedly done his due diligence and he, he had gone in, and I think I mentioned to you at the time. I, my analogy was, you know, these are the mafia guys who'd kind of bought enough dry cleaners to suddenly <laughs> be a dry cleaner business. You know, and Nobody has to die here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so it, it was very hard to resist at that point. They were so big. I, I guess, you know, if you're a long-only manager, it, it was very and, – and you've got to say, you know, you know when I look at stuff, I, it's, it's, I never have 100% certainty. You know, there's always a, a decent probability that you're wrong. Yeah. Um, and if you're a long only 
investor managing other people's money, was it right to take the risks to not hold any Steinoff? I mean, that's, that's because given we'll see, how large it was. And, and you'd look bad because everyone else is doing well out of Steinoff and then by comparison, yeah, it's a combination poorly. Pe- yeah, perhaps you feel you are, are doing comparative analysis, but, but, but for me it would be a risk thing is, is saying, well, if, if I'm wrong, you know, it's, it's a huge benchmark risk to take. I mean, it's very aggressive not to hold any startup. I mean, well done to anyone who didn't. <laughs> so, so you've, I mean, you've been an analyst since 96. You were at uh, JP Morgan, then Concilium. And I mean, how does this, where does startup rate in terms of the big investment disasters in this country? What is the kind of the global context of, of startup? How should we think about it? It's huge. I mean, it, it's, it's up there with um, Theranos. Theranos. You know, exactly. I mean, it's of, of the same order. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and lots of analogies as well. You know, the dominant CEO. Theranos being the U.S. drugs company. Yes, uh, uh, blood testing. Blood testing, yeah. Um, you know, the cult of the CEO, etc. A, a lot of an, a lot of analogies. It's, it's. Uh, I think, the, and, but I, I don't, I don't know if anyone has to worry too much about these kind of frauds. I think, I think they're so infrequent that, you, you know, you don't want to spend all your time looking for frauds. Hmm. You know, the, the, so, and, and it's very seldom they happen with big companies. I think they're more likely to happen with smaller companies, um, which for me brings me to another, another issue, which, which, um, which, which is the systemic problem, which is, is that CEOs now in many of these listed and sometimes large listed entities get to behave like owners. Hmm. Is that you have a massive agency problem where, you know, directors are almost employed to a large extent, by the, by, by the CEO, they're identified by by by, by the ex, mm. by the executive members. They're on the board. They're co-opted, um, and and they get to behave like owners. They, that can't be right. How, how do you how would how do you stop that from happening? I mean, what do you th- you know, if you had to talk about reforms and. Um, I think uh, uh, was it Craig who talked about uh, you know it's it's going to lead to more regulation, uh, possibly the whole Steinoff fallout. Um, what would you suggest to stop the, the cult of the CEO from from happening? Well, as a start, I think you need truly independent directors. So, 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 and what is a truly independent director? So, a truly independent director surely can't be someone that has the the CEO and senior executive stamp of approval. You know, so so so, so how so so there's no uh, something that needs to be done about the appointment process. How does one identify directors that are truly independent? Perhaps there's a body that that that, that gets to appoint hmm. directors, which are co-opted onto various boards, like a supervisory board. Exactly. Although yeah, Steinoff has had a supervisory yeah. board. Actually, was that yeah. example? Bad, bad yeah. example to yeah. use. <laughs> in terms of yeah. in terms of the other lessons from Steinoff, in terms of this fraud, what would you say are the kind of things that 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 boards could could learn from identifying when it comes to identifying frauds earlier than perhaps catching the next Steinoff, which I'm sure is already out there. It's very hard to say in the case of Steinoff because I, I'm not sure what information the board had available to them. But some of it, but just post the, the thing unraveling, I mean, some of the information that was coming out seems incredible. I mean, for instance, they appointed a company who was supposedly putting putting together a system so that they knew how much cash they had in different entities around the world. Bizarre. I mean, that should exist on a day-to-day basis mm. for any well-managed company. Um, why was the board not aware of that? I mean, surely, the, surely the question should have been asked about how you put information together. Where does the information come from? And then, even from the outside, I think I think there's certain signs that that the issues. I mean, it gets to a point where the balance sheet deteriorates to such a point 
that, that, that it's a problem. I mean, this should be evident to, to the board before it's evident to outsiders. And, and the other companies, I mean, I think Aspen's an example of this. I think Caro's balance sheet is, is, is not pretty. I think it's a very ugly balance sheet as well. I mean, yeah. the, the, these, these are issues which are, are evident and, and should be even more obvious to the board with more information available. Um, Andrew, um, before we went on air, you were talking about a system to, to pass through uh, accounts. Um, I mean, is there a way for, and, and not just an analyst, but for a retail investor to apply a more rigorous, um, to look at a, a, com- a set of company financials in, in, a, in, a, in a much more rigorous way and say, okay, I can come to my own conclusions about the health of this company. Um, yes, I, I think not to the same extent as a professional investor, just because of the, the data available to available to professional in- investors and, and the time that is spent, spent applying themselves. But you know, there, there's certain things that, that I think are easily gettable that, 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 that provide science. So, for instance, cash flow generation. It's not that a company needs to generate positive net cash flow every year because sometimes they acquire stuff which is actually healthy for the long-term viability or growth of the company. But if a company consistently absorbs cash, it's, it's a problem. You know, they're either, either going to have to raise capital or, or raise debt. And that, so you end up, quite simply, if you end up with a company that's, not cash generative with huge levels of debt, you've got a problem. Mm. The other telltale signs, I mean, for instance, the, the, the ratio of non-operating assets to total assets. So by that, I mean, um, and this is evident in the Steinoff case, you know, the, the ratio of goodwill, trademarks, all these things which are generally... You, fluffy. Fluffy, you know, you get when you acquire something and perhaps overpay. But that, that and, and that over time has proved a very good indicator of, of future underperformance. You know, once that ra- ratio goes beyond a certain point. And, th- and that's also immediately evident on the balance sheet. I mean, this yeah. companies that have a lot of goodwill, a lot of trademarks, a lot of potentially non-income producing assets. Just, um, just lastly, what I was going to ask is, um, in terms of this, I mean, y- you were, well, JP Morgan was, and, and certainly Craig Butters was, one of the first few whistleblowers when it came to Steinoff in terms of everything not being quite as kosher as Marcus used to would make it out to be. Um, how, do we change the financial system in a way that would pay greater heed towards what the skeptics, what the what the whistleblowers say about a company? I mean, how would you do that? Uh, is that even possible? I don't know. You run the run the risk of kind of uh, predicting what the ten, 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 10 of the last <laughs> declines or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, that didn't ha- that didn't happen. I I I really don't know. Rob. I, I, um, I I think I think I think I don't think it has it has to happen from a from an outside analyst point of view, I, I think I think we got good information. I think we we got enough information to 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 make make decisions which may be right or may be wrong. But I think we get enough information. We get all the information as, that I, that I think we we can have as as outsiders generally. I mean, this management can lie to us and does I think um, on occasion. I think the real issue is, is internally um, what companies are doing, what how boards are appointed diversity within boards. I mean, if you look at that board of Steinoff, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a very diverse board. Mm. You know, a lot of old white guys. Old white chartered accountants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean uh, and there's other boards like that in South Africa. And, and, and uh, so I think improving diversity of the boards, definitely finding a mechanism to appoint truly independent directors would be helpful. Um, and yeah, I mean, from, from an accounting point of view, uh, 
you know, there, there's lots of scope for companies to 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 choose a more or less aggressive accounting policies, and that's always going to be the case. Yeah. Um, a couple of executives I've spoken to whose share prices have been under pressure sort of lament the post-Steinhoff world and say um, it's as if investors don't believe anything we say, and they're looking for the next. They're looking for the next Steinhoff. They're looking for the the next big lie. Um, which does sound a sort of a, a, a bit of a lament on the executives' part if their share prices are under pressure. Um, do, but do you think there's a there is a, a, a justified worry there that nothing will ever be the same post time off that people swing to the to, to I suppose the other side of the pendulum that they that they take nothing for granted. They look at a set of accounts and think, I'm not sure if I can believe any of this. Do you think that's a danger or just actually makes us all sharpen our, our wits a little bit more when it comes to going through a company's financials? No, I think it's all cyclical. I think in a few years we'll all forget about this and <laughs> at some point we'll have, have a bull market and we'll all get, we'll get gung-ho about we'll it again. Building up the next time. Off. Yeah, and we'll build it and, and, then, and, then, and then something will hit us. And I think, I think, that's this, I think, I think it's a function also of where the South African market is. I mean, people are, are, are probably more pessimistic and, than they have been for Mostly a Mostly in the dark, thanks to Eskom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People can't read financial statements <laughs> at this point. And on that note, maybe before our power gets switched off, um, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us in the studio today. Pleasure.